Welcome to episode 64 of the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Schlag. On today's episode, I am joined by my special guest, Georgie Fear. Georgie is a registered dietitian, a science-based nutrition counselor, and a behavioral health expert. You might recognize her name because I reference her a lot, specifically her book, Lean Habits. Now, Georgie has a new book out, Give Yourself More, a science-backed six-part plan for women to hit their weight loss goals by defying diet culture. On today's episode, Georgie and I go deep on a few of the key concepts of the book, including some practical advice for overcoming emotional eating. It is an amazing episode. Let's go. Georgie, hello. There's no sound. How about now? Is that better? Georgie, there you go. Yay! I had the volume way up and you like said my name really loudly. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> drums. I said your name really loudly because I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here too. I'm really glad that you could come on. Are you in a closet? I am. I'm in the <laughs> closet, Kim. <laughs> I record all of my podcasts in my walk-in closet. That's a good because idea. Because it has pretty good acoustics and it dampens the sound really well. And of course, I have my, my nice microphone here, which I should move slightly closer to my face. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah. So I do, I record in the closet. So I tell Lots of people do closets. I've had people on who record under a blanket. <laughs> oh, nice. So all kinds of fancy equipment we've got going on. So Georgie, tell us what adventures in the Canadian wilderness have you had this week? Uh, well, there's always some adventures in the Canadian wilderness for me. I know. I like watching so, them whenever you post about them. Last Friday, so Friday afternoon, like kind of alpine therapy is my, my friend <laughs> Drea and my standing Friday afternoon appointment. They, she tries to get out work early and I block off my afternoons on oh. Friday and we go do something. Um, she's a retired professional skier or a full-time Nordic skier. So she whoops my butt even though she's now retired, she is a amazing athlete. So sometimes we'll do like uphill running intervals. Uh, other times we'll climb a peak or just go for a hike. So last week we went to Mount St. Pieras, Pira, Pira, I don't speak French, so I probably am not pronouncing it. Um, one of the peaks next to Lake Louise and it's beautiful oh. and you can see the lake and it's like beautiful blue green water. How um, close are you to Lake Louise? Is that um, it's about an hour. It's been oh, an hour. Oh, wow. That is, on, that is like top of my bucket list. I want yeah. to go there so badly. Well, you have to let me know when you come. I go there quite often in the winter for cross-country skiing because they have some really nice long, like you could just like ski for 10K in one direction and turn around and come back. So nice. because I'm a distance marathon skier, I'm always looking for the longest trails I can find. I bet. Yeah. Well, your life yeah. outdoors looks absolutely blissful. 
So many exciting things. I have to tell you, I just got back from a week of vacation. You know, there's not many places we can go nowadays, right? You can't really go anywhere. Yeah, it's pretty limited. We actually had booked a house at the Jersey Shore, which we literally never do because we like to actually go away. And that's like an hour and a half from my house, but we booked it. And so it worked out because we were able to keep our trip. And so am I remembering this right? Are you from Jersey? I am from Jersey. You are. Where are you from in Jersey? Um, Homedale in high school. I, I went to school is. in Homedale, which is in Monmouth County, kind okay. of like near Sandy Hook. You can okay, say. yeah. Uh, if you're thinking it. shore speak. Yeah. Um, and then I lived uh, in New Brunswick when I went to Rutgers undergrad. So I spent four years at Rutgers undergrad and okay. then came back for another five in the PhD that never happened. Okay, uh, got so it. Got I in New Brunswick and Somerset, kind of central Jersey for a long time. So. Well, look, Jersey isn't like the prettiest beaches ever, but I have to tell you, it's still nature. And I just spent a week swimming in the ocean and laying on the sand, reading your book a lot of the time, by the way, uh, you know, thanks. and just taking long walks. And I realized that that is the thing that I need more of in my life. That's what I'm going to give myself more of. Like I need more nature. So, more nature. More nature. It is so healing. I mean, it like it was, it's so interesting when you look at the research about how like exercising in a green space actually gives you more physical and mental benefits than exercising in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like if you can I, possibly get out, get out. It's amazing. You know, cause most of like my athletic pursuits are done in my basement gym, right? Like I'm inside lifting heavy stuff and I love it, but I don't often pursue outside stuff and I need, I need to, that's, that's what I'm giving myself more of, which brings me to the title of your new book. Yes. Give yourself more a science backed six part plan for women to hit their weight loss goals by defying diet culture. You got it. I got so it. You've I been wrote it reading. down. So I had it all, I had all the words in there. So you've been reading, give yourself more and you're intending to give yourself more. Absolutely. I'm on it. I'm on, it. I'll tell you later about the other thing I've already started this week as a result of reading your book and my vacation oh experience that happened together. So it was, it cool. was a good thing for me. So let's start here. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book uh, along with Alicia Fetters. Uh, We are co-authors on the book. And I think we wrote it in part because, you know, sometimes you just have something that you want to say to the world and you say it to one person at a time. If you're a health practitioner and you're like not satisfied with saying it to one person at a time, you're like, I want to say this to as many people as possible because I, we both feel really passionately that we want women to benefit from some of the realizations that we've had and that we've been able to share with our clients and just watch person after person really flourish and have amazing transformations, not just physically, but just living so much of a better life when they changed some of the stories that they told themselves about what they wanted. And so the story of give yourself more starts with all of our old stories about trying to be less. And I think most of us have spent some period, if not the majority of our life, thinking about how can I finally shrink these thighs? Or how can I hide these forehead wrinkles I have? Or how can I not be so loud? Or how can I be less emotional? And you know, trying to hide our flaws and be smaller and not inconvenience anyone is very tightly entrenched in just kind of like the, the feminine ideal of gender roles. Don't you think? Absolutely. When I'm shaking, you all can't see this, but I'm shaking my head vigorously to everything that Georgie says. I'm with you. Every last bit of that. I'm a person who did that for literally as long as I can, I can remember being a teenager and thinking like, I need to be smaller. And totally. 
I have to tell you, I was not overweight as a teenager, but in my mind, like I needed to be smaller. I would look in the magazines and I'm like, I don't look like that. Like clearly I have work to do. And that didn't stop. That did, that just like, I'm 49. Like right. that went on for decades. Yeah. I, I bought it hook, line and sinker too. And I remember having had an eating disorder and had a dietitian and a psychologist all trying to help me out. You know, they would say, they ask you questions like, well, what does it mean to be thinner? And why do you want to be thinner? You know, not being overweight, it's a safe question. Why do you want to be thinner? And I remember thinking, because if you're thin, it's like you don't have needs and you don't have to depend on other people. Ooh, and not needing anybody else's help or input is such a strength, right? Like, isn't that amazing if you can just be like needless? That's interesting, Georgie. And so that was kind of your goal for getting thinner. Like that's where yeah, part of it for you. I'm sure there's a whole lot of mental gook tied up mm. in knots inside <laughs> all of our brains. But yes. you know, I've talked with you know thousands of women over the years, and some men too. This is definitely far from exclusively a women's problem. And so many of us feel like our weight goals or our fitness goals are just appropriate manifestations of ways that we're trying to be perfect. And that tends to be less in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, And your approach to it is not going to be less. It's going to be more. Right. Um, before we get into kind of some of the meat of that, I want to talk a little bit more about one of the terms in the title, because I think people hear the word diet culture a lot and not everybody really has a handle on what that means. So why don't you kind of give everybody a working definition? What is diet culture? Sure. Now, like many things, it's going to depend who you ask. Yes. And a lot of people would say helping anybody reach a weight loss goal is diet culture. Which Absolutely. I, I disagree with. So I, you know, I like, do as well. <laughs> if, if you've worked in a medical office, for example, and you're helping someone control their diabetes and you talk about making healthier food choices and that person loses weight and controls their blood pressure and blood sugars better, are you now part of the diet industry? I don't think so. I don't think no. that's diet culture to help people take care of their bodies better. You know, I also oil my bicycle chain so that it lasts a long time and has a nice smooth ride. Is that part of diet culture because I'm trying to take care of something? Yeah. I don't think so. I think that's just basic bike maintenance. So I, uh, not helpful probably for me to say what diet culture isn't. Hey, you I, know, it's a, it's a start for people to hear what it isn't. Right. So I don't think it's synonymous with changing body weight. I think diet culture is the idea that we need an external program or rules or restrictions to help us be less. Mm -hmm. And so I think of diet culture as being exemplified by things like the Atkins diet, the keto diet, you know, various yeah. things that come with strict rules. It's a program similar to like a workout program that give you instructions for what to do. Um, and following those things for the purposes of losing weight. Mm -hmm. And often, I feel like diet culture is also characterized by weight being the only important thing. It's and the most important thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and no consideration given to your social life, your mental health, your anxiety, the amount of Tupperware that you want to wash on a daily basis. Like, <laughs> just not treating you like a whole person. I think the diet yes. industry or diet culture defying diet culture, as we say on the book cover, defying diet culture means treating yourself like a whole person and not just a weight. Yes. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, 
So it's not the idea. Nothing about this book is going to help a person to only think about their weight, but doing all of these things can in fact help them with something that they've probably been struggling with for a long time. If they're like most women and they wanted to lose weight, it's not been a short thing for most of us. It's been something we've been working at for a long time. Um, much of that work doing things that are very much a part of diet culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned in the book that the most effective exercise and diet interventions are founded in positive emotional experiences. Tell us more about that. Sure. So positive emotional experiences are basically things that we find we're having fun at, things that we're enjoying. So if you say, go to college, you meet your roommate and she says, hey, come to the running club with me. And you've never been a runner, but you think, yeah, I really like this new friend I'm making. Let me go to the running club. You go to the running club. Everybody's super nice. You chat, you jog in the sunshine and you think, God, that was so fun. And nobody was barking at me with a stopwatch like gym class. Maybe I do like running, even though I thought I hated it. And three years later, you might still be running because you've had a good time with it. You've had Mm -hmm. social support. Maybe you've gotten together with those people and had breakfast after the run someday. You're discovering that you feel less stressed on the days that you get up and run. Um, And when you have these positive experiences, they draw us forward with a really reliable source of motivation. And it's different from using a negative motivation to try and motivate ourselves to change. Mm-hmm. So if you picture a bomb going off and people just running, they just scatter, you know, yeah. that's what we do when we're afraid. There's very little conscious goal oriented behavior. We're frantic, you know, mm-hmm. negative emotions make us run and they often yeah. make us run in haphazard and zigzag directions. But if you have a goal, if you see something positive, like the top of the mountain or the lake that you want to reach for that beautiful sparkling water view, you see it, you know what it takes to get there, and you can start in that direction, and it draws you the whole way there. But if you're running away from something that you're afraid of, like, oh, I don't want to have to buy a bigger size of pants, I don't want to have a heart attack, they tend to only be motivating until we've gotten far enough away from them that we're not so scared anymore. Yeah. And then we go back to complacency. And so in, in the context of health behavior change, clearly if we're motivated to get to something and we keep working at it, that's what we need to maintain our good health. But mm-hmm. if we're just trying to get away from something, then we may feel like, you know, we lose three pounds, we're far enough away from the doom and gloom that we were afraid of. And so we stop trying. Yeah. So moving towards something positive versus running away from something negative. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good approach. I know one of the things you had mentioned in the book is the idea of adding in habits or replacing unwanted ones rather than taking things away. So, you know, like, hey, let's go for a walk versus stop sitting on the couch. Yeah, yeah. I think um, when we focus on what we're adding in, you know, we can look for new benefits. We can look for new things that we really enjoy. You know, having more skills, more tools, more options is always a good thing. Yeah. None of us like to be banned from something or barred from something. But if you think about it, like, maybe I'm going to trade up for this other behavior that comes with completely different outcomes, then there might be some benefits Mm -hmm. that'll keep me hooked on that. It's such a different feeling. So if you think like, you know what, I'm going to really focus on eating until I'm satisfied versus I'm going to really focus on cutting back on sugar, right? Like those are like such opposite things that could absolutely reach the same goal, but one has a completely different feeling. I know. And the amazing thing is how hard I have to work (laughs) to get people to try the kind of more 
centered goals and more centered thinking because we've practiced and it's so familiar to think about like cut this out cut that out avoid that that Mm -hmm. often it's hard for people to think about like what would I gain from doing this yeah it's such an important reframe and you're right I get really quizzical looks back from clients when we're talking about this and they're like I've never even thought about thinking about it like that yeah. And such good light bulb moments come from when you're those reframes about those positive. What can we add in here? What can we think about positively here versus what yeah. we're, we're going to get rid of and not allow ourselves and all of that. Kind totally. Of shit. And there's so much that we can add to our lives in terms of more, even if we don't change weight at all, or even if we don't want to change weight at all. Like I have had so many wonderful things add into my life with absolutely zero gravitational pull change whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's, you know, one one thing that I really like to point out is like, you don't have to have a weight loss goal or even be female to, to read this book and to gain a lot from it. Um, oh, I wholeheartedly agree with both of those having just read it. Absolutely. Yeah. And for people who do feel like, yes, part of my goal is to have a lower number on the scale. Like how do you make a lower number into a more goal? That's one of the, the questions that I get. Um, so the way I help people shift that sort of less into more is think about the benefits of what you want to get. So if somebody's thinking like, you know, I would really like to be a lower body weight, I'll say like, okay, so what would you get from that lower body weight? And they would say improved blood sugar control, healthier arteries, uh, able to run up the stairs without losing my breath, be able to wear those pants that are too tight right now to be comfortable. All of those are positive. Mm -hmm. So don't think about the weight loss middleman think about those things. And like, when I make this healthy choice, or I go for the walk, when I choose the walk, I'm closer to wearing the pants. I'm closer to the good feeling of pride, Mm -hmm. closer to feeling sexy, you know, thinking about like good things that we want to get rather than the taking away or minimizing things or the things that we want to avoid or are fearful of. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to read two facts you cite in the book. I'm going to read both of them first, and then I want to kind of um, kind of jam on on both of them together. So two statistics you shared. More than one-fourth of the women trying to lose weight at any one time are already at a healthy weight or underweight. And then fact two here. And I had not read this study before, but it did not surprise me at all to find this out, that what the average woman pinpoints as the ideal or most attractive female body is medically underweight. Yeah. Isn't that something? It's crazy. That does not surprise me, but I did not know that that was actually true. How do you think that this has become the standard that women strive for? And how can we change that? Wow. Those are, those are tough questions. Okay, George, you solve that for us. <laughs> and while you're at it, let's have world peace. Throw that in too. <laughs> um, how it happened... Of course, I can only surmise on, but I, it's often, you know, we are social creatures. We can't not notice what other people are doing and going after, and it imbues a sense of value. We, when we're looking at a menu and somebody else orders something, it gets a couple of points in our brains because somebody ordered it. That's why we all like social proof. Like you're shopping on Amazon and you're like, well, that book doesn't have any reviews. Nobody bought it. Well, that book has 87 reviews. Let me see that one because it's been popular. Mm-hmm. So part of it, and this doesn't explain the origin, but it explains the continuance, is that we see other women talking about weight loss so pervasively and magazines posting about weight loss and forums talking about weight loss and 
it all feeds into the idea that we're supposed to be chasing this thing. You know, like money is only valuable because we agree on it having mm-hmm. a value. And I think weight loss has some of the same attributes that like, if everybody's agreeing that this is a valuable thing, then maybe it's worth something and I should be in the charge trying to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that it can be a socially accepted stand-in. Um, so instead of having some things that you really want in your life, it might be easier to chase weight loss. Sometimes, uh-huh. especially if it's presented that there's a particular program that you can follow uh-huh. that will give you weight loss. Like, oh, so there's an app here and I can simply enter in all the things that I eat. And if I stay below this number of calories, I have weight loss. There's very little mystery in that mm-hmm. equation. And so it's appealing. Whereas mm-hmm. the alternate discussion that somebody might have with themselves might be, I'm feeling unfulfilled in my life what sort of things would make me fulfilled and how can I go about getting them? You know, there's a lot of fuzzy, nebulous and scary. Yeah. It's way easier to be like weight loss. (laughs) I'm going to tackle that one. It's my life project. So, um, and then there's subtle messaging that, you know, we, we all know how pervasive weight stigma is and that, um, you know, if you look at characters that are villains, in movies or cartoons, they're more often overweight than the, mm-hmm. the prime character, the protagonist mm-hmm. or the hero or heroine is usually very slim. Um, and there are a, a million subtle ways that we're told that being overweight is not acceptable or that it's not okay. And so part of the social desirability is we wanna be liked by other people. And so I know definitely a message I got as a kid was that you're well-liked if you're thin and pretty. Mm-hmm. And if you're heavy, nobody will want to be friends with you. People will point at you and say things when you cross the street in front of their car and warn their children not to become like you. And it's, you know, um, a proxy for social desirability. And we all mm-hmm. want to be liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More so, we, we all want to be loved. Yeah, I want to find somebody that values us and appreciates us. And so sometimes our physical form can be a way of saying, please like me. Please Mm -hmm. think I'm good enough. Absolutely. Now, all of that said, I know that you are not anti-weight loss. I'm not. You're you're not anti-weight loss. No. um, What do you think of the body acceptance movement? I think the body acceptance movement has done some fantastic things for so many people. I think it's really broaden the spectrum of bodies that we can look at and say that's a body and not anything more about it you know i think it it used to be if you opened a magazine and you saw anything that looked realistic it was like oh that's plus size yeah yeah (laughs) and i i see magazines now i see ads on the internet and my social media that have women of all different body shapes and they show their swimwear in sizes from like a double extra small to double extra large they they make a very inclusive uh, visual display, which I think is fantastic. Like mm-hmm. nobody, nobody wants to shop for clothes that they can't see on somebody that looks like themselves. So mm-hmm. I do really, I applaud the, the diversity that we're seeing, you know, ages, sizes, all sorts of things. You know, I'm all pro diversity. Um, where I, I find I disagree with some individuals and some individual concepts that may fall under the body acceptance movement is that it doesn't mean 
that you can't change yourself in the mm -hmm. sense of, you know, many people who would say they are fans of body acceptance, if I said, well, what do you think if I highlight my hair? They'd say, go girl, you do it. Whatever makes you happy. But if I said, what if I want to lift weights to have stronger shoulders? They'd be like, rock on, you build those strong shoulders. Well, what if I want to lose weight so that I have healthier blood pressure and less pain in my knees? Oh no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think it's slightly less inclusive when it comes to people having body autonomy to gain or lose weight. They would say gaining weight is fine. Dyeing your hair green is a-okay. Fake boobs, rock them if they make you feel confident, but don't you dare lose weight. So yeah. I think I disagree with that sort of special treatment of people that have weight loss goals as being invalid. Yeah. So. I'm with you 100%. Every single word you have just said, um, that, that's where I kind of depart from them too. Um, that any intentional weight loss is always wrong, is not, that's, I don't understand that. I mean, there are medical reasons, there are all kinds of reasons. And yeah. frankly, like you just said, if I want to dye my hair green, I should feel free to dye my hair green. And if I want to lose 20 pounds and I feel like that's going to make me feel better, move better, whatever it is, I should be able to do that and not be totally. told that I'm wrong. Yeah, I think we're desiring that or that yeah. I hate myself, that I hate my body. Oh, so true. Right. And so how is it possible that a person can love their body and want to change it? Well, I, uh, a lot of people will use the analogy of plants or children, which are excellent here, <laughs> which is when you love them, you take care of them. Yeah. You know, we abuse things that we dislike and that we want to cause harm to. But um, yeah, you don't have to be focused on negative attributes or negative feelings about yourself to want to change something. Sometimes you think it's great as is, and you're excited to see how much stronger it can become and how much more it can thrive. You know, as we said, there's positive motivations. You don't always mm -hmm. have to be running from something that you dislike or trying to move away from something. You can yeah. just be positively motivated. Like I really want to be able to, um, I want to bike hundred K in one day, at least once this summer. <laughs> yeah. And it's not because there was anything wrong with the 70 or 80K bike rides I did. I just like seeing how hard I can push. I like seeing how high I can reach. I want to yeah. learn things. I want to read books, not because I think I'm stupid, but because I know there's more out there to be learned and why not help ourselves? Absolutely. So, yeah. I and think I think a person's approach to weight loss um, can have a lot to do with whether they feel loving towards their body while they're losing weight or not, right? There are certainly ways so that true. it would be really hard to feel loving towards your body while doing this particular program or whatever it is. Yeah. And, um, and so I really like the approach that you have here in this book because I think that there's nothing involved here that would then say like, oh gosh, I really must hate myself if I'm doing this, right? Like we're not beating ourselves into submission doing any of these things. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pro joy. <laughs> yes. I'm pro happiness. I'm pro fulfillment. I want everybody out there to have healthy and meaningful lives. And I don't think we have to sacrifice. I don't think we have to treat ourselves like garbage to live well and to have healthier bodies. And I think treating, I'm treating ourselves like garbage too often is what gets in the way mm -hmm. of people finding those lasting results. Cause as I said, like when you move, when your motivation is negative, once you move far enough away from the thing you're avoiding, you let your guard down and you stop trying and your motivation fizzles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it comes back to that chasing something positive. Yeah. Love is an inexhaustible resource. Mm -hmm. like, think about the things we do for the people we love. When you're head over heels for somebody, they're 
their whim you would like get up at two in the morning to get it for them to make them smile mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. the amount of work that it takes to raise a child if you did not love that person you would not be doing all of those things it is very it's, true <laughs> and it's 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 an amazing resource you know when we can harness our love for ourselves or for other people so yeah give yourself more is a method of making your life and your body just healthier and stronger and more abundant without taking anything away from anybody else. Yes. Yes. And so in the book, you cover six different areas where we can give ourselves more. I really like the workbook style of the book, by the way. I thought that was really a good piece to it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, and here's this little, here's this little page we can write stuff down. I really liked that. That was, that was fantastic. Um, you know, and we could, we could do multiple podcast episodes on each of those six areas, right? We could, like, we, could. we could take one of those areas and like, we could meet like five or six times and still not cover it all. But why don't we hit the highlights of a couple of those sections here? Sure. Um, sure, sure. Let's talk about emotions first. This is one that I just really dig talking about. Um, I think that's my favorite section. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> So emotional eating is such a huge stumbling block for so many people. So talk to us a little bit generally about how we can give ourselves more when it comes to our emotions. Yeah, the, the reason I think that was my favorite section to get into is because it's one that I've learned the most about in the last five years. So believe it or not, Lean Habits for Lifelong Weight Loss, my previous book is five years old already. Is it really? And it is. And in the time since then, it was like, oh, man. This is such a huge topic that I'm talking yeah. about with clients. Almost every client and I will have some topics, we'll have some conversations, some talks about emotionals, mm -hmm. emotionals, emotions. <laughs> I was going to say emotional eating and emotions, and then both words tried we'll to jump out of my mouth. We'll just call them emotionals now. Emotionals. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do, I think it's such a paramount topic of importance when it comes to people's weight loss challenges. You know, if emotions weren't part of the game, everybody would just use an app, follow a diet, and that it would be, be it. so easy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Eat less, move on. Yes. Uh, but we're not. We're we're very colorful, interesting human beings, and I have found that understanding our emotions is very equipping. Not only so that we can take better care of our health without emotions getting in the way, but so that we can really rise to the occasion of meeting our emotional needs. And having satisfied emotional needs is like filling a hunger that people didn't know they had in so many cases. It's like Absolutely. I had no idea that there was this dry spot in my life that just needed a rain shower on it. Yeah. Um, and it feels so good to start to become aware of like all the different things that we feel and then all the options we have in terms of how we want to manage those feelings. How do we fully enjoy the positive things we have? How do we use emotions to enable more meaning and closeness with other people? And how do we get through the uncomfortable emotions? How do we cope with them in ways that make us stronger and make us more resilient and help us not feel traumatized by mm -hmm. them as opposed yeah. to using maladaptive coping behaviors? Right. Now you used a term and I'm going to say this term and you're going to correct me if I say it wrong because I've only read it. Alexithymia. Very close. Alexithymia. Alexithymia. Okay. I said it with my Philly accent. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> Alexithymia. So this, if I understand correctly, is a term used to describe difficulty or inability to identify and describe emotions. 
Yes. So talk to us about, and, and by, and you said that it's very common in women with high levels of emotional eating, overweight, obesity, eating disorders. This seems really important. Like that our it inability is. to identify and describe our emotions is showing up in, with people with these problems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So alexithymia is the sort of word that's used in research circles and practitioner circles, not the coffee shop. Yeah. Like you don't I've literally really hear- never heard that word in my life. But typically, if if you think back to childhood, that's where we often learned the language or not of emotions. Some parents um, will teach their children a greater vocabulary when it comes to emotions. Like, are you feeling happy or sad? Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling disappointed? You know, they'll they'll use more words when they talk to their kids, and kids generally who grow up learning a greater um, palette of emotions can describe what they're feeling better. Mm-hmm. Whereas many uh, parents don't necessarily talk about feelings. They may have gotten messages from their own parents that this is just not a topic that they talk about much. You know, like some people don't talk about money. Some people don't, you know, don't talk about politics. Like it's yeah. just a, a thing. Some people don't talk about feelings. Mm-hmm. And so if you grow up in that sort of environment, you may grow up thinking, I feel good or I feel bad or I feel neutral, but that's about it. Yeah. And you read emotional poetry and you don't understand what these people are going through because it's like, who are these people that are having these huge emotional waves? I'm cool as a cucumber. Uh, I often find people who have um, a lot of skill in not feeling their emotions because they're suppressing them or denying them or using maladaptive mm-hmm. coping behaviors are described by other people as cool as a cucumber or just totally level-headed and even keeled. Interesting. And that's not to say that everybody who's even keeled is suppressing their emotions. But you <laughs> yeah. come across that way because nobody can correct you. Nobody can be like, Kim, I know you've got anger in there and you're not letting it out because no one yeah. can see it if you're suppressing it. It's like the sort of thing that only we can really figure out. Right. Um, so, yeah. So it is, it is really interesting to notice that there's a whole spectrum of human emotion in all of us and some of us feel things more freely and can describe them better with words Mm -hmm. and some of us have less of that ability but it's totally 100 percent learnable because i was the most remedial person ever (laughs) and i i would love for you to talk about the exercise you suggest i liked how you compared it to identifying trees that we start out and you might be able to say like the the trees with needles and trees without needles but then you can learn to be like oh this is an oak tree i thought that was such a great explanation of like oh wait i know i know i'm this is good and this is bad those are my only two feelings and then you can kind of start to pick them apart so tell us about that exercise you describe in the book so when you're trying to learn your own emotions and maybe get better at describing them and that is not just um the sort of thing you do for kicks it's it's very purposeful because it paves the way to being able to do more things with your emotions. You know, mm-hmm. first you're able to tell what sort of animal you're dealing with before you know how to take care of it. Right. So um, often people can tune in and you listening can probably tune in right at this very moment. And if zero is completely neutral, not feeling positive or negative, you can try and feel if you're slightly above neutral or if you're slightly below neutral. That's kind of like the first level is like, am I slightly good or slightly bad? Now, the easiest times that we can pick up on emotion are when they're very intense. Like tears are streaming down your face. 
there's probably an intense emotion going on. Or and you've got a word for that. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and your cheeks hurt because you've been laughing so long and so carefree, probably feeling a strong emotion. Yeah. So those strong emotions are the easiest. We can usually think about times that we've been like very, very sad or very, very happy, the best and worst times in life. And then as you get more familiar with like these different feelings, you start to be able to identify more of them, like a wider array, you know, identifying when we have felt angry. You can think about somebody that's treated you really poorly, maybe somebody that um, insulted you or hurt somebody that you care about. And you can think about that and think about how you felt and kind of match them and go, oh, anger. That was probably anger, that mm -hmm. feeling I had, that that urge to do something, um, to not be able to let it go. That, that's an angry feeling. Um, and many times women and men have been patterned to accept and reject different emotions. So for women, it's often more acceptable to feel sad than it is for men. Mm -hmm. So for little boys, if a little boy is crying, he's more likely to be told to stop crying earlier and some male figures in his life may say, don't be a girl, be a man, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, you know, man up. We have uh -huh. all sorts of phrases there. Don't be a sissy. Uh -huh. um, and they're, they, it's seen that being sad is almost a feminine sort of associated trait. And so there's, you know, subtle messages and not so subtle messages for boys not to show sadness. However, it flips when we talk about anger because it's supposed to not be shown by women. So many women feel uh, a hesitance to show anger. So if somebody does something to us, we may feel more likely to try and transmit that into sadness or self-blame or something else, not to be angry. But men are all, or boys are all encouraged in some ways to be more aggressive, to let their anger feelings out. So, so you can see how different emotional contexts in various cultures, as well as different families, may have um, enabled us to have a preference for certain emotions or try not yes. to show other emotions. Yeah. And so this exercise you're suggesting, so notice where you're at, like with regards to neutral, mm -hmm. and then what? So if you search for a feelings wheel on Google, mm -hmm you'll get like this, you know, there's many of them out there. They're great. They're just like lists of emotion words. Yeah. Um, and I, Alicia and I put lists of various words in the book because sometimes you can look at a menu and pick something off of it, even if you couldn't pull the word out of your own mind. Right, right. So if you look at the menu of emotions that's in the emotions chapter, you might be able to scan it and say, yeah, I am feeling a little dejected and I never would have come up with that word. Yeah. So it's, like other vocabulary, it's really just practicing, mm -hmm. practicing, tuning in, thinking about the circum, you know, not only what you're feeling, but also the circumstances and what's happened to you recently, mm -hmm. because it makes sense that when we feel love and admiration and good fortune, we feel positive, we feel mm -hmm. happy, we feel eager if we're anticipating, you know, so we can kind of predict what are logical things that we might be feeling. Um, and when it comes to the negative emotions, it's normal to feel disappointed if we are surprised by something that was not as favorable as we thought it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's normal to feel hurt and sad if we've been insulted or gone through a loss. Um, and so it, many people do find working with a therapist is helpful 
in terms of getting in touch with their emotions and talking about it. But if that's not something that someone's interested in, you can also just try and practice describing your own state on a regular basis. So that is one of the exercises in the book is to try writing down words for how you feel. And there's a couple words that you're supposed to avoid. Do you remember, Kim, which words I recommend yes. avoiding? Uh, I think it was like good, bad, stressed. And fine. The very general words. What was, there was so, like two more, weren't there? Like, there and, was a couple. and fine. Fine, yes. Good, bad, stressed, and fine. Because <laughs> yes. fine doesn't mean a whole lot. It's so like, yeah. just like fill in the blank. Fine. You know? fine. Stressed is helpful, but it's so general that I want people to look one layer past yeah. that to try and be just a bit more specific as to the type of stress. Yeah. Um, and then good and bad are as stressed as a step in the right direction in terms of you've figured out if you're above or below the line of neutral, but let's yeah. try and get a little more like, what is this good feeling? What is this bad feeling? Yeah. Cause it's um, very different. Like if you're bad and what the word you use dejected, that's a very different feeling if you're feeling dejected versus if you're feeling, um, mistreated or whatever yeah. like you know so like those are really different feelings that that are both bad mm -hmm. yeah they're both unpleasant yeah so the the benefit of getting in touch with all of these different words and your different states is one you might realize if you have certain ones that you're afraid to feel like i recognized at one point in my life that i was very very hesitant to feel angry with people i cared about oh, because okay. i felt like somehow i wasn't allowed to be like it meant I didn't love them if I also felt angry at them. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that's not true. You can love somebody to bits and be really ticked at them. It, they coexist. Your know, emotions coexist. Every mother ever is like, that's true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you're late to the party, Georgie. <laughs> um, so once you've gotten, you know, gotten these words, you can learn more about yourself. And you also can start to pair it with your food behaviors, your exercise behaviors, your healthcare behaviors to see if some of the emotions are standing in your way. Mm -hmm. You know, if particular emotions are linked to you performing behaviors that you don't want to perform, or if they're linked to you doing things that you feel really good about, that gives you some really helpful cause and effect information. Mm -hmm. And also it's not so downstream, you know, it's not. So in the past, perhaps every time you felt guilty, you go for chips ahoy. So this may be like a, a path that is just carved in your mind, guilt, chips ahoy. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can look at the things that are causing you guilt and see if maybe you don't need to feel guilty over them. Yeah. You can also look at the times that you do feel that emotion, what other options you have. So eating is certainly an option. And then there's other options as well. And you can look at what are the alternatives that you can take for each of those. And there's just so many emotional management skills in the book that I feel like we could talk forever about them. I know. Yeah. But the idea was, you know, one of my pet peeves about emotional eating as a topic is the advice out there can typically be summarized as don't. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's just not helpful. Yeah. Somebody's like, here's advice on how to stop biting your nails. Don't. Don't do that. Yeah. yeah you're like, that's not helpful. That's not it's helpful not helpful. It's not, it's not. And so it's, it's so important, you know, and that's the reason I want to talk about this specific subject because there's nothing you can do to manage emotional eating until you absolutely understand what the emotions are you're feeling. Yeah. And so it's like step one is having to be willing to like back it up and really start paying attention to like, what are these emotions I'm feeling? And then looking for patterns like, oh gosh, like I emotionally eat every time, like, I'm pissed off at my kid, you know, like that's what I do. And like, well, 
okay, is, do I want to do that? Is there something else I could do? But yeah. you can't do any of that unless you figure out that that's what you're actually feeling. Totally. And, and then you so have important. so many options because yeah. um, some of the stuff we talk about in the book is, you know, strategies that are somewhat upstream from the emotion to help us experience more of the positive emotions and be less distressed by the negative ones. Yeah. Because there are, there's, you know, mental tactics and ways that we can view the world and our situations in it that make us not feel quite so 10 out of 10 at the end of our ropes. And then because we can't eliminate all the negative emotions or uncomfortable emotions from life, there's a lot of tips in there for how do you handle those if you don't want to use maladaptive coping skills. So, mm-hmm. you know, accepting some degree of discomfort in life, you know, reframing them as ways that we get the things we want, practicing uh, distress tolerance, mm-hmm. you know, using social supports. Um, so there's a lot of techniques in there to help people have skills so that they can handle these feelings of different types really skillfully, I guess, to yeah. repeat my word. <laughs> yeah. And I really, and the thing that's so important is for, for people listening to this to know, like, if this all feels like, wow, I don't even know what you're talking about. These are all things you will practice. Like you can practice your way to understanding. And Georgie has great um, exercises in the book. If you're like, I don't even know where to start with that, you know, read this and know that like you can become a person who understands your own emotion and then can handle them in a way that is not maladaptive. Like if that, if you're like, yeah, I don't see myself doing that. It, it's a skill you practice. Yeah. Like anything, like, you know, like if somebody tried to teach us like Olympic level gymnastics on a single session, we'd be like, right. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah. if they're like, here's how you do a somersault. We're like somersault. Got it. Give me yeah. a week to practice the somersault. Yeah. And that's how we build any complex skill set. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The, time. the nice thing about a book format is that you have to put one page in front of another. Mm-hmm. So you just like you can't read the whole book at one shot, you can just take the practices mm-hmm. one page at a time. Yeah. They're already laid out in an order. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, I, I could talk about emotional, I could talk about emotionals all day. Emotionals. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. I want to talk about at least one more subject from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I really identified with this part about rest and about giving yourself more when it comes to rest. Um, you know, the idea that you talked in there about if I take a break, there's no way I'll get to everything I need to do. I was like, that's exactly right. Right. That that's me. You know, I'm an achiever. I'm building this business. I have all this stuff that has to get done. And so I I loved this chapter. So talk to us, how can we give ourselves more when it comes to rest? When it comes to priorities, you know, a lot of women will raise their hand and say, yeah, rest is important. Of course. But then we kind of put it on the back burner when it comes to other stuff. You know, we tend to not want to devote our time to it when there's something else we could give our time to. We tend to not want to devote any dollars to it if we can put those dollars towards something else. Um, And if it's inconvenient, we're unlikely to persevere to get rest. But if we put rest on an equal playing field with food and water and pleasure and time with our families. Well, pleasure is a whole nother one that we can get put on the back burner. But <laughs> if we put it on the top tier, then we, we make time for it with the same fervor that we make time for the other things that we yeah. need to do. So you know, I'm the last person who's going to say, well, just take some of the things off your to-do list so you can rest. But I'm saying give it equal effort as the other things because it has immense payoffs to do mm-hmm. so. Um, and women shortchange themselves in rest in many different ways. You know, the most obvious would be sleep. 
that people mm-hmm. don't sleep enough. But there's also just the downtime, like allowing yourself to not be doing three things at once every minute that you're awake and yeah. giving yourself a few minutes. Um, many women say, and here's where I'm like tempted to choose my words very carefully for fear of offending someone. It's so easy for us to think we can't. So easy. I don't have time. I don't have time. That used to be my mantra. Don't have time. Don't have time. And I was a stress ball. I don't have time. I don't have time. But maybe we do. Maybe we do have time, especially if we're doing other stuff to handle the stress, like stress eating. Mm-hmm. So when I was telling myself I didn't have time, I was still snacking. So somehow I was making time to snack. Yeah. Many times we also are not as efficient as we could be in doing our tasks because we're fried. (laughs) Absolutely. When you're like not giving yourself any rest and you're pushing yourself to the wire, you're just not as productive as you could be for a lot of those minutes where you may find yourself, your mind's wandering, you're distracted. It's human. Like you're not a robot. Mm -hmm. So taking rest at an earlier time point can be more effective in the sense of perking you up and getting you going again at your optimal operating capacity and spare you the, you know, running on a dead battery for the last 10% of your work. You shared a study that took place in Japan that I thought was super interesting. Yeah. So they actually uh, experimented with a four day work week and found that productivity increases with people. And I, I'm not all that surprised. I mean, when you first hear that, you're like, what? How would that happen? You know, why won't my boss just give us a four-day work week? Yeah. And when I think about myself um, and my clients, we often find that there's a sweet spot where w- there's some days when you have so much done that you want to tear your hair out and that's too far. But there's some days when you have enough of a full calendar, if your mindset's in the right spot you maximize your productivity. You think I'm going to line them up and knock them down today. And you get excited about your own productivity and you don't waste time and you're efficient and you move from thing to thing to thing to thing. You give yourself kudos and then you have a three day weekend. So I think that can be the mode that people get into if they're determined to get their work done in four days so that they can have a good rest. It pans out. But I think if you tried to get all your work into four days so that you could repaint the house, tear up the carpet, redo the garden, empty the trash, you know, like if you just filled up your weekend with more work, yeah. I somehow think it wouldn't work. I think we would just go back to wasting time and being not as productive during the week. Like you have to have enriching rest mm-hmm. to be able to work hard. I, I, that's a really great point. Um, so a change I've made in my life based on this I, you know, I was reading it. So it happened because it was the same time as my vacation. When I took vacation, this is the first time I've t- taken a real vacation away from work. Like I Good put the for thing you. on my email telling everybody like not getting back to you till after the 13th, Good talked to all of my clients and said like on a vacation, here's what you need to know, like all the things. And so then I really didn't work and I don't usually do that. And, but to get ready for my vacation, to be able to do that, I pulled all these crazy, like almost all nighters trying to like get everything. It was a pretty crazy situation. Yeah. So by the time I got on vacation, I was flat out exhausted. 
because first of all, I'm on a beach vacation, which any mom knows if you have a bunch of kids you're bringing to the beach, like it's a lot of work. Like it was so much a lot of logistics, get us to the beach, like with the food and the stuff. And then I'd done all these like 18 hour days to get my work. And so I was just flat out exhausted. And so I slept a lot the first few days and then I was just really resting. And I just, I actually slept like, like real eight hours a night sleep. And by the end of the week I had come to two decisions. Okay. I'm excited. I've only been, I've only been home since the weekend. So I've only been doing this a few days, but I can already tell, like, I feel so much better. I will get eight hours of sleep a night now. That's now my non-negotiable. So whatever time I go to bed, like I know it's, I'm not setting my alarm till eight hours later. Like whatever Mm -hmm. time that is, I had to be, if I have a morning thing, I have to set it correctly. And I've done it every night this week, even though, even though last night, like I was trying to hang out with my daughter and she wanted to stay up later. I'm like, I'm now waking up at 7.30 in the morning. I'm a 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. or so, but I did it. I set my alarm for 7.30. So I'm getting more sleep. And the other thing is I'm not working at night because I usually work all the time. Like wow. if one of my kids or my husband like is not like physically standing here, like we're doing something, I just work because I like my work and there's yeah. always work to do. And it's finally dawning on me. I will never come to a point where I have nothing else left to do. I won't. Like, there's always going to be more I could do. And so if I don't just give myself a hard stop, I will never stop. I'm just going to keep going. And so that's my other thing. I I have to take off work at a reasonable, like, stopping hour and actually relax in the evenings. So what are you doing with that time that you're giving yourself in the evening? It's hard, (laughs) Georgie. It's hard. And that's one of the next questions I have for you. I'll tell you what I've been doing. But how do people learn to rest and relax if that's not typically their their go-to mood? For me, I've shifted to doing things like being outside actually reading a book for pleasure. Look, I love to read. And so even if it's a nonfiction book, it's still relaxing for me to like sit mm-hmm. and read. So I go sure. outside and I read and we, we're getting ready to redo our kitchen. And I never just sit around like looking at pretty kitchens online. And that's what I've been doing. I'm thinking, oh, this is, you know, just making myself a nice little book on house of like the things I think are pretty. So that's nice. how I've been spending my evenings, which is not how I usually spend my evenings. <laughs> wow. So it's, there's a degree of discomfort because it's so weird and different. It's like a yes. foreign land. And I can think of about eight other things that like I could productively be doing. Mm-hmm, and not that, that these aren't productive, but you know, like it's, and that's what I'm saying. Like, how can people practice resting and relaxing if their natural tendency is not rest and relax? Well, I think one great example that you've already given is that it feels a little weird. So expect it to feel a little weird mm-hmm. at first. Like to cut your nails a little too short for a few days, they're going to feel a little touchy. Yeah. Um, it's going to feel a little weird if you go from never letting yourself rest to letting yourself rest, but look for the benefits. So have you noticed some benefits? What did you notice about getting more rest on vacation that made you want to do it once you got home? I'm like breathing easily. Like I feel like this weight is off of me because before I always felt like I was just in this mode of like, go, 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 go. Like, and yeah. like now I feel like just a little more sense of ease, you know, not not constantly running against an unbeatable clock. That's pretty priceless. That's yeah. pretty priceless. Yeah. So I think looking for that is really helpful in determining if this is something we want to continue. Because your brain's going to be, you know, you could be more productive if you were doing this. There's mail on the counter that you should get rid of, you know, work on that pile. <laughs> There's going to always be other things to do. But if you're saying like, no, this ease of breathing the sense of peace that I have in myself is important. That's worth working for. That'll help you stick to it for long enough to make it a new habit. Um, so it's also, I, I always encourage people to work in baby steps. I am a fan mm-hmm. of slow, comfortable change. So for some people, it may just be slowing down some of the activities that you normally rush through. Like 
other than not resting, there's like, you can go even further than not letting yourself rest and try and hurry through everything. Yeah. Simply taking some of the time pressure off by allowing yourself a realistic frame of time to do things can be a, a huge step in the right direction. Um, and then you can also practice taking micro rests. Like you can take a small pause to refresh yourself between client appointments. If you have yeah. to see a lot of people, a few deep breaths, resetting your intention, deliberately closing your mind on the things that are behind you and opening to the things that are in front of you can be mm -hmm. really rejuvenating other than trying to keep them all juggling in your mind at the same time. So yeah. that is a, a form of rest, even if you're not laying down. Yeah. Um, giving yourself permission to lay down is a huge move for a lot of women. Like they would rather go to the kitchen and take handfuls of granola out of the bag and eat them standing in the pantry. But going to lay down is scary shit. <laughs> yeah. You take five minutes to do that, but you're not going to take, you know, five or 10 minutes to go lay on the sofa. Yeah. Go lie down. And no one in your family is going to think you're lazy. It's in your head. It's pretty much in your head that people yeah. might think this, or I might think this, or I might not be a good mom or a good housewife or a good anything uh, because I'm laying down and take that fight on push back against that voice that's bullying you and saying, you don't get to rest. Like not today, mean girl. Today <laughs> I am taking a few minutes because I'm important. And if I yeah. take good care of myself, I do well. And yeah. nobody else is winning. Nobody else is benefiting from me pushing myself to the brink of destruction. Yeah. It's really, I, it's a really good way of putting it. And I like that you talked about you first before you mentioned the other people. Cause you know, a lot of women have the, the idea in their mind, like, I need to perform well for everybody else. And that's why I need to do X, Y, and Z. And it's true. Like it's hundred percent true. You will perform better for everybody else if you're well-rested and, and all the things. Um, but that's not the only reason it matters. It matters because you're a person and yeah. you deserve to feel well-rested and all the other yeah. things. Yeah. Just like we, like I mentioned, bringing rest up on par with all the other important things that you want to make time for, like bringing yeah. yourself up to on yeah. par with everybody else. Like, yeah, I want to make food important. that everybody else enjoys. So I end up cooking a bunch of different things. Great. Make something you enjoy too. Like, I think that's the difference between, yeah. you know, healthful serving of other people and allowing them to serve us and having like a, a balanced dynamic versus the dynamic where we're just serving other people all the time and no one is refilling us and we're not asking anyone to refill us and we're not refilling us. Yes. That's huge. It's a big mindset shift for a lot of women. Uh, it's an important one. Thank God there's a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> Georgie, thank you so much for coming on. Where can everyone find you if they're looking for you? Uh, well, right now I'm in my closet. but <laughs> <laughs> Go to Lake Louise <laughs> right, yeah. and start looking in people's closets. Just look up on the, hill, the hilltops. I'm probably <laughs> up there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, find me on Facebook. You know, my name is Georgie Fear. There's not too many of us out there. My company is called Nutrition Loft. So you can find us at nutritionloft.com. We have some excellent free materials. You can take some of our free courses because we love giving information away for free. If you want to get the book, Give Yourself More, it's available direct from the publisher, which is on target publications. So if you go to otp.com, you'll see Give Yourself More is shown prominently there and so you can pick it up um you could also put give yourself more book into google and i bet you'd find it um it is sold on amazon so if you want to support amazon you can 
go there. Um, it is available for Kindle. It's available in all the electronic formats and Audible. So you can hear Alicia and I read the book to you as you fall asleep. If you bring amazing. the Audible version. Oh, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it's actually really fun to record the audiobook. Though exhausting. Thanks so much, Georgie. Okay, everybody, that's a lot of ways you can find Georgie. So there you go. Thank you so much for being here and coming on and talking to us about these really important subjects. Thank you. It was a blast. Thanks for uh, reading my book and I'm excited to see how it pans out in your life. Amazing. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much for being here and listening in to the Fitness Simplified podcast today. I hope you found it educational, motivational, inspirational, all the kinds of ational. <laughs> if you enjoyed it, if you found value in it, it would mean so much to me if you would go ahead and leave a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. It really does help to get this podcast to other people. Thanks so much.